Pretend for a moment that you've been given the responsibility of recruiting teachers for Sunday school, for youth groups, or vacation Bible school. You've been asked to write a letter that will be sent out to prospective teachers, and you're searching for a passage of scripture to include. Well, I seriously doubt you would pick the passage to which we come this morning, the third chapter of James. It begins with these words. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. It surely doesn't appear that James was trying to recruit teachers when he wrote that. He may have, in fact, been actually trying to dissuade people from becoming teachers. You know, there's a good possibility that too many people wanted to become teachers in the early church, thinking that as teachers, uh, they would be respected like rabbis in the synagogues. And rabbi does mean my great one. Don't call me rabbi. <laughs> not that you're tempted to do so. But not only that, James had just written that faith without works is dead, and a primary work in the church is certainly teaching. Perhaps some had assumed that if they were to put their faith into practice, they would have to become teachers. They may not have understood that not everyone in the church has been given the gifts needed to be an effective teacher, nor that there are many things that can be done both inside and outside the church that express our faith effectively. Whatever the case, James apparently had more potential teachers than he could use. But he didn't just try to find a teaching position for everyone who wanted one. In effect, he responded as our Lord often did. When a scribe said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He didn't say, great, come on, I'll find a place for you. He said, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, why did he say that? I think it's because he wanted them to count the cost of following him. And when the multitudes got excited about following him, he went so far as to tell them they could not be his disciples unless they loved him more than their own family or themselves. He even told them they couldn't be disciples unless they were willing to carry a cross and warned them to make certain they had what it would take to finish before they started. Apparently, Jesus never took a Madison Avenue correspondence course on how to sell people on something. He was brutally honest. He never painted a rose-colored picture of kingdom work. And neither does James. Even before anyone could actually volunteer to teach, he warned them that teachers, including himself, 
with the we that they incur a stricter judgment, that teachers are held to a higher standard. And why is that? Well, one reason might simply be because teachers talk a lot. And the more they talk, the more chances there are that they will say something wrong. You know, no one is perfect. We all stumble. And it only stands to reason that those who use a lot of words will get tripped up by their words more often than those who say very little. And Jesus did warn that in the day of judgment, we will have to give an account for every careless word we say. But I think there's even more to it than that. Those who teach are trying to impart something to others. So they will not only be held accountable for the words they use, but for the content of what they teach as well. James wants teachers to realize that their words will be scrutinized for their appropriateness and their accuracy. And not only by their pupils, but by the one in whose authority they might claim to be saying them. Teaching is a big responsibility. And teachers must understand the challenges and the dangers that come with it. So James goes on to share some very important truths about the tongue that every teacher needs to know. But of course, teachers aren't the only ones who need lessons on the tongue because we all stumble over our tongue. And James says something that should make us all realize just how powerful it is. James, continuing in the third chapter, verses 3 through 6. Now, if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The tongue may be small, but it's mighty. And to get the point across, James uses two illustrations. He begins with the bit in a horse's mouth. Now, a bit, for those of you who aren't cowboys, is the metal rod that's connected to the bridle and lies across the horse's tongue. Reins are connected to the ends of the bit, and by using the reins, you control the horse. Then he uses a maritime illustration, a large ship. Driven by strong winds is kept on course by a relatively small rudder. And a rudder, for those who aren't sailors, is the blade on the back of the ship that the pilot turns to control the ship. Bits and rudders are small. 
but they control big horses and big ships. And by the same token, a small tongue has great power. When it's under control, everything is under control. When it's out of control, everything is out of control. And an out-of-control tongue has unbelievable potential for harm. You know, the little ditty, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, is not true. Wounds caused by words can take much longer to heal than broken bones. And the hurt caused by words can quickly spread like an out-of-control forest fire. In fact, James says the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, a whole world of destruction and filthiness and sin comes from tongues that are ignited by the fires of hell. And the fires of hell are eternal. So our tongues' actions can have eternal consequences. Our tongue can light a fire that will set the course of our life and burn forever. Jesus said, For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. So what we say makes all the difference in the world and in the world to come. By our mouth, confession is made to salvation. And by our mouth, we can condemn ourselves, expressing our rebellious and unrepentant nature. The power of the tongue is hard to overstate. A person's whole life can be defiled, ruined by one highly offensive or inappropriate statement, as we are all well aware. Even something we said that seemed innocuous 20 years ago can destroy our life in the current cancel culture. And after nearly 50 years of ministry with you, I could destroy my ministry with just a couple minutes of offensive and inappropriate words from the pulpit. The power of the tongue is frightening. And we better take seriously its power. We can never dismiss what we say with, I'm just blowing off steam, or it's only words. And do not forget that James said in chapter 1 that if our tongue isn't bridled, our religion is worthless. So how do we bridle it? How do we tame our tongues? What James has to say next may surprise you, verses 7 through 12. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. 
Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Now that's not very encouraging, is it? James has already said that only a perfect man can bridle the tongue. But since no one is perfect, no one can tame the tongue. We've tamed every beast there is. We can swim with tigers and sharks and make pets out of snakes and alligators. I've done that. We can even train birds of prey to hunt for us. Done that too. But no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. One moment it seems harmless, but then it strikes out with venom. One moment it's purring, and the next it's ripping something or someone to shreds. We use it to bless and to curse. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse fellow men who are made in his image. Something is wrong here. Blessing and cursing come from different sources. A fountain can't send out both fresh and bitter water unless it has two sources and they fluctuate. Could that be what's happening when one minute we offer a blessing and the next minute we curse someone? Could there be two sources within us, a good one and a bad one? And could it be that what comes out of our mouth depends on which source it's coming from? Could it be that within us is a white dog and a black dog, and they're continually fighting? And could it be that the one that wins is the one we're feeding the most at the moment? Indeed, we do have two sources within us. The spirit who indwells us and the flesh. We have a new nature and an old nature. And even though we have been given a new nature, our old one still lurks in the corners of our heart. And the tongue simply indicates which source is in control at the time. So the tongue isn't something we can or even should tame. It's merely an indicator of what's going on inside us. It reflects what's in our heart. You know, taming the tongue without fixing the problem in the heart would be like breaking out a warning light on your dash without fixing the problem in your engine. So we shouldn't even try to tame the tongue. Instead, we should use it like a heart cath to expose the condition of our heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And James said, fig trees don't produce olives and grapevines don't produce figs. A tree or vine is in fact identified 
by the fruit it produces. In a similar way, the tongue serves as a very useful purpose. It enables us to examine the condition of our heart. It's therefore vital that we examine what's coming out of our mouth, that we examine our tongue. Verses 13 through 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good works, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, it may not be immediately obvious But I'm convinced James is still focused on teachers and their tongues. If teachers have the wisdom and understanding necessary to teach, they know they must not only share it by their words. They must put their teaching into practice. They must practice what they teach or preach. Our teaching must be reflected in our personal behavior. Do what I say and not what I do has a hollow ring to it. And teachers must be honest about their reason for wanting to teach. If their desire to teach comes from personal ambition or a longing to have the respect shown to teachers, their motive for teaching will become obvious. James tells us that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition will manifest itself in disorder and every evil thing. So problems in the classroom or in the lives of those being taught may very well reveal problems of the heart, the heart of the teacher. Furthermore, teaching that promotes arrogance or jealousy on a personal or racial level reveals the source of the teaching. Not all teaching is from above. Not all wisdom is from the Lord. Much that is taught in classrooms and even in churches is earthly, natural, and sometimes outright demonic. So those being taught should never assume what's being taught in school or even from a pulpit has its origin from above. Wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering 
and without hypocrisy. We must therefore carefully examine what comes out of a teacher's mouth so we can discern its source. If the teacher is sowing heavenly seed, it will be seen in a harvest of righteousness and peace. Now, obviously, this teaching from James isn't only applicable to teachers. What comes out of all of our mouths reveals what's in our heart. And if what comes out leads to disorder and every evil thing, we have a heart problem. Our heart is not under the control of the Spirit. A loose tongue can do a lot of damage in schools, in churches, in society at large, and in our homes. So we all need to keep our tongues bridled. But the only way to effectively bridle our tongue is to surrender our heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If your tongue is out of control, don't just bite it. Let it point to a heart that needs to be surrendered. Jesus says, give me thy heart. He'll change us from within. And that change will be reflected by what comes out of our mouth. Let's commit ourselves to that. Give me 